My name's Bill, uh, lead pastor here at Bethel Christian Church, and um, there is just a lot going on this holiday season. Before we get into the message, going to be in uh, chapter 9 of the Gospel of Mark. I'd uh, like to bring a couple things to your attention. Tor Aronson, it's his birthday today, putting you on the spot, 92 years old, our oldest member. <laughs> Yay! Wonderful man. Please talk to him after the service. Um, it's the only Norwegian I know. My herring has appendicitis. I'm not sure if that would be useful, but wish I could say happy birthday. Um, Second thing is you heard about an opportunity on the 23rd uh, with, with Homeless Lunch here. That is a great way. Um, often it's, Christmas is a focus on, you know, what do I get? What do I have to do on the list and all of this? And to focus and center and say, you know what? This is the greatest thing God ever gave us. And, and if we could have the, the, the throughput, the, the flow through us, it's how we're made. It's good. Another opportunity, and, and I won't, um, I'm going to mess up the details, but right after this service, Raziel Rizzo will be at a table right out there, and City Teams, who does a wonderful ministry amongst many people whose lives are just out of control, out of, out of their place, showing them the, the hope and the redemption and the love of God, doing a massive Christmas feeding program. And so there's opportunities to prepare food, to clean up, to set up, to serve, to sing carols, to talk with people, something for everybody. It's the 22nd of December, uh, starting from 8, going all day long. You can show up, go, however it fits in. Wonderful opportunity. Please, please talk to her about it and, um, and serve. Come to the part of uh, scripture, actually, where there's just a huge turning point. Um, All the Gospels pick this up. It began last week, and it continues this week. And it's the concept of coming to terms with who is Christ, who are we, our lives, and what does it mean to give them to God. The disciples were just, they, they thought this was great. This is, this is what it means to do faith and life. And, and Jesus and the rabbi has called us. And, and it's exciting. And this is the hope of our nation. And, and we're following together. And now it starts to get scary. Because Jesus is saying it's not just participation. It's not just agreement. It's not just going and doing some deeds. He's saying it's your hearts, it's your lives, it's everything. It is absolutely everything. And, and, and they don't know what to do with it. Moreover, God says this world is not the way it should be. There is brokenness. There is hurt. There is hate. There is suffering. Lives are destroyed. We, we chew each other up. Satan's having a field day. Four horsemen of the apocalypse, they've been, they've been galloping for quite a while now. Injustice, all of this. What do we do with suffering? What do we do with evil? Uh, we, we were reminded uh, brutally uh, of the shootings in Connecticut. Evil. And, and we're shocked. How could this happen? How, how could someone do this? What is going on? I, I think everyone's just straining to understand a reason, a motive. Just, can I make sense? Can I put this somewhere in life? Because, God, you said this. And, God, I know this. And yet, there's something just so fundamentally wrong when, when this happens. Part of the problem is we don't appreciate how broken we are, how evil, evil is. We make friends with it. It's an ally. 
It helps us. We, we can craft and manage it just enough to get by where we can control our lives. But we don't realize it's all or nothing. That's the end goal. That, that is, we, there's one of two destinies. And, and it's all or nothing. Where is God when we suffer? What is going on? Because we expect that life should be more predictable, should be safer, should make more sense. We should have more guidance and direction and at least, if not direct protection, at least be on higher ground or something from the floodwaters following God. It is in the sufferings of Christ that we experience the power of the resurrection. It is in the sufferings of Christ that we experience the power of the resurrection. The tendency, I think, for all of us as humans is to minimize pain, minimize pain, maximize pleasure. I mean, that's just... Animals do that. Everybody does that. That's what everybody forms their life around. And so often, even in the faith, we say, I am empty. I'm hurting. I want more. The power, the glory, the good stuff, God. This is attractive. And it should be all now. I'm trusting you. I'm in, God. Why do I hurt still? Why do I hate still? Why do I still struggle? Why are six and seven-year-olds shot? This week's story is connecting immediately to last week. Do you remember what we talked about last week uh, at the end of uh, Mark chapter 8? This is where Jesus took the disciples on another field trip, and he starts revealing more of the kingdom, more of what their lives would cost, more of what's important, and they absolutely freak out. Took them to this place, Caesarea Philippi. It's the most notorious place they could imagine. And again, putting it delicately, the main form of worship was getting freaky with goats in public, really. And, and this was going on all the time. That's how it worshiped. That's what was going on when Jesus was saying, if anyone wants to be my disciple, they must take up their cross daily and follow me. And the disciples are just looking around and they're scandalized. So he starts yelling and making a scene to embarrass them. And he says, upon this here rock, the temple where they were worshiping, upon this rock, this is where I'm building my church. Not where it's comfortable, not where it's safe, not where it's predictable, not where we put up walls and hide from the world. But in the most hurting, the most hateful, the most broken, damaged places, these are the places calling out for God. And where is God nearest? When we are stripped and most aware of our need for him. He reveals to his disciples the nature of this life is that it is broken and it is broken beyond repair. And none of our solutions will work. None of them even come close. There is only one solution and it is radical. And in order for death to die, there has to be the death of all. Um, Christ conquering death. In order for sin to be done away with, pure justice has to be exacted. That has to fall on someone. We pay for our sins or Christ does. There's something absolutely radical and beyond us. The disciples are beginning to grasp the magnitude. And then he lays on them, it's going to be different now. Upon this here rock, I'm building my church. And, and they're wigging. The son of man must suffer, be abused, and be executed. And that's where we're going. And they're, they're absolutely, absolutely really. Peter had made this beautiful profession of faith. Um, you are the Messiah. Blessed are you. Peter, son of Jonah. Nobody's revealed this to you. You got it from God. That, that's, that's solid. That's great. You're a rock. Just like what we're going to be doing here. And then immediately Peter says, may it never be, Lord. No, we can't. We're going to fight for you. We are your, we are your followers, and, and we will fight to the death for you. May it never be. And he totally rebukes him. In fact, he said, when he says, get behind me, Satan, 
That's what Jesus actually literally said to Satan in the wilderness temptation. Because Satan was trying to tempt him with the ultimate shortcut. You can have the glory without the suffering. You can have the wholeness without the healing. You can have the forgiveness without the reconciliation, restoration. He's saying you can have all the good without the bad. That's what Satan was trying to tempt Jesus with each of the three temptations. These are the purposes. Although being God, Jesus needed to learn obedience and be perfected through that which he suffered. There's something more to our humanity than just maximizing pleasure. There's something more to our humanity that needs to be fixed beyond our abilities to deal with it. And so this major turning point, all, all the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all of them follow this. It's, everything's leading up to, if you will, the mountain and, and, and leading back down. How could Jesus willingly choose suffering and death? See, what was incomprehensible to the disciples was inevitable to the Lord. For this purpose I came, not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. The theme of the Declaration of Divinity and the path of suffering rocked their world. And it wasn't Christ's divinity that was a stumbling block. Freaked them out. Who is this guy? The wind, the waves, the demons. Ah, but they're getting it. All right. It was that divinity should have to suffer. Could not accept that. Could not believe that. And that had some pretty scary implications. Because if this is what was going to happen to their master, what's going to happen to them? That's why they came to Jesus. There was something in their lives. They were frail. They were helpless. There was a lack. There was a need. They saw something. They're moving towards something good and positive. And now it's getting real. Who is this Jesus? We have this connection, and this is in the other, all the, all the gospels literally make this connection. And so it, it's really important to understand what happens with the transfiguration when God, God's divinity shines through is immediately tied to this declaration of suffering and death. You can't understand one without the other. And all the gospels connect it with this thing. And he said to them, truly I tell you. So he had just said, you must take up your cross and follow me. And, 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 and so, the, the one-two punch here, um, the disciples are saying, okay, Jesus, and he, he lands one saying, upon this here rock, the pit of hell, I'm building my church. It's going to get ugly. It's going to be messy. Who's in? And, and they're just already, that's too much. And he says, oh, secondly, you're following me. If you want to be my follower, you got to take up your cross. Now, we have so sanded down the cross and made it nice and soft and an IKEA product you can assemble together and hang in your house and it's easy and it's good and it's a, it's a shorthand for the Christian faith. I'm going to pick up my cross because that means I'm going to do the Christian stuff. Just cruising around my cross. Disciples wouldn't have understood that way. So the cross was horrible. The cross was evil. The cross was the most humiliating way to abuse somebody as they're being killed and to mock them in death. The Romans designed this for that purpose. Stripped naked, bleeding to death, and suffocating in front of your family all day long. And sometimes they break your legs so you suffocate faster. It was just cruel, horrible torture. When the disciples heard, take up your cross, they weren't thinking of, I'm just a closer walk with thee. Uh, you, you know, of just, you know, I'm... You know, I'm going to bling up some, with some crosses and do the Christian thing. Or they weren't thinking of taking up your crosses, dealing with an annoying roommate or getting stuck in traffic. Oh, we all have our crosses to bear. They were thinking of radical death. They're thinking humiliation. They were thinking of the worst possible way to die. You, if you want to be my follower, you are to go down to the gas chamber and kill yourself. You are to be 
savagely beaten and raped to death on national TV. You are to be absolutely horribly scandalized to where people can't even talk about what happened to you. Are you still in? Because this is the nature of the kingdom. Because this is the nature of sin. It is that ugly. It is that broken. It is that comprehensive. And so if we're going to do something about this, a new life, a new transformation, we got to go where people are hurting. And we got to deal with our own hurt and hate and frailty. Nothing short of that is going to do. Nothing short of unadulterated Christ is going to make a difference. It's not more of us. It's not the right answers. It's not the correct theology. It's not being nice and reaching out and showing people how cool Jesus is. These are all parts of it, but they're way down the road. It is the living person of Christ working his reality out in all of our lives. That's what is attractive. That's what is healing. That is what's calling all the nations, and we get to be part of that, but it's all or nothing. God allows us to wade into the pool slowly, but he's going to ask, he's going to ask for a cannonball sooner or later. When he said, truly I tell you, some are standing who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. A lot of people think, well, Jesus thought everything was going to get wrapped up in his lifetime, and he was wrong. Paul thought that, he was wrong. Other people thought that, he was wrong. Not so. Um, that this deliberately connects both of these events together tells us something. I don't think Jesus is talking about the tra- transfiguration. Transfiguration is what we're going to talk about this week. This is Jesus kind of doing, Whoa, we'll get there. Um, he's not talking about the kingdom of God coming with power. He doesn't, he's not talking about the transformation. I believe Jesus is talking about Pentecost. He's talking about God's spirit now dwelling with us. It used to be all nations had to come to the dwelling place of God in Jerusalem if they wanted to do business with Yahweh. And, and that, was, that was the Old Testament. It was this um, centripetal attraction. Everyone coming to the center. But now the New Testament and Pentecost, it is God dwelling, not his throne on high, not a place in Jerusalem, not anywhere, but in our hearts. And we go to all nations. It's centrifugal. It's outward. It's expanding. It's going to where the people are. This here rock. This here nightmare. He's talking about Pentecost because he said, you will remain in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high to be my witnesses. And the power of the Holy Spirit came upon and they proclaimed the person of God in miraculous ways, in ways that everybody could understand. Spoke their heart language. That's what Jesus did. Incarnation. But the transfiguration was absolutely mission critical in connecting the dots between suffering and glory. They would not have made that connection if they hadn't experienced this for themselves and, and, and uh, understood from Christ the role that this was taking place. Let's jump into the story of Mark chapter 9, starting with verse 2. After six days, and this is the only place other than the passion narrative in Mark where he uses a specific time frame. Normally he says, eh, after a few days or sometime or later, immediately, or whatever. But he's being very unusual here. So he's saying, hey, listen up. This is, this is important. After six days, Peter, uh, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him, led them up to a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter, James, and John, they, sh- they show up a lot in the, the sort of the inner circle, the inner posse. He had his followers, about 150 people tagging along. And then he had the 12 that he chose. You didn't pick me, I picked you, um, who were there. And then there was Peter, James, and John who were kind of the inner circle. And John's kind of his best bud. That's, that's the way it works out. 
Jesus gets to choose that. He had purposes for them for which he was preparing. Now, these were the three biggest hotheads that we, we know about in Scripture, where, where we have um, James and John calling down a napalm strike. I mean, the first, first rejection from the gospel, it's like, take them out. I, I mean, they were voted, I think, most likely to get in a bar fight. Um, you know, just get the pool cue out, out of the lights. Cause, cause they knew, Sons of Thunder. I mean, it wasn't fourth meal at Taco Bell. I mean, Sons of Thunder was just this, this temperament that was just flashed it. What? You talking to me? You call me a liar, man? Dude, relax. I just said pass the salt. Um, and then there's Peter, who, who is, who makes these guys, you know, look like Mother Teresa. Because, I mean, first chance he gets, it's violent. Sword! Ah, ah. I mean, he doesn't even know how to use this thing. He's just swinging in like this. Cut somebody's ear off. You know, he wanted a mouth. And a cuss split him down the middle and he just got an ear. He's a maniac. And so these three knuckleheads, Jesus is just keeping them close, keeping them close, keeping them close. It, it speaks volumes to us. Why does Jesus keep us close? High mountain. All the prominent points, no pun intended, okay, pun intended, in Jesus' ministry, they occurred on mountains. And part of this is the narrative and the way to, to say, hey, here's, here's something that's going on. Here's something that's significant. So he, he goes off alone to pray on a mountain, fellowship with a father. He goes to retreat to a quiet place. He goes to a mountain to choose his disciples. He, um, oh man, there's so many of these things here. I, I lost it. Oh, well. Um, he, he goes, he talks about the end on, on Mount of Olives and, and how it's all going to wrap up. Uh, he heals. He's tempted on a mountain. Satan took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And so all of these, these pivotal moments occur on a mountain, just like with a transfiguration. Okay? The passion went up to Jerusalem, delivered up into the, uh, the trial with, with, with Herod. Caiaphas, all that, and then was executed on the Mount of the Skull, the place of the Skull, Golgotha. Mountaintop, mountaintop, mountaintop. We all need those mountaintop experiences, but as I say, fruit's grown in the valley. And so these were pivotal times for perspective that then you can get back to life and move forward. Word transfiguration is where we get the word metamorphosis. And this is the word that's used for, say, a, a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. Metamorphosis, complete change. In other words, there was something radical here. It wasn't a bright light shining on him in his clothes. Peter's making the point here. He's got, man, I was freaked out. The only thing I remember are just these clothes. They were just blazing into my eyes. That's all I could see. I just saw this. I closed my eyes and I saw this purple garment. Because there was just this laser eye, you know, in there. And he's saying it was... Not like Moses or the people we heard about. They're in the presence of God and it's like smoke coming off. It's not smoke, it's light, it's glory. Um, it's not a reflection. He's not the moon, he's the sun. It's coming out through him, get it, the sun. Um, because it's, 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 it's coming through him. And what he's doing is basically not becoming something different. He's just turning down the volume on his humanity. Jesus never stopped being God, not ever, not once. He could use his powers at any time. He chose not to at all. He humbled himself, taking on the form of us, frailty, that he would save. And so he's radiating this glory. He's showing him, you know what? You thought I was this. You were blown away that I could do this or that or this or that. And you still relate to me just like a dude. You know, that's part of the incarnation. That's part of the intimacy. And God come close and that's necessary. But there is so much more of Lord, high God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, that we also need to understand. Because this world and evil and redemption at what God's doing is not going to make sense otherwise. And they're tied up in the person of Christ. It says that, that um, Moses and Elijah were there. 
Now, both of, these, both of these guys had prophetic roles. Both of them were really, when you look back on everybody in Old Testament history, these are the ones that said, you know what? This is what God is ultimately doing at the end. Deuteronomy 18, Moses said, God in the end times is going to raise up a prophet just like me. So that's where we get a lot about Moses tells us about what kind of a Messiah uh, we should expect. And then Elijah, you know, last week we saw he's the forerunner, Malachi. Before God sets everything, the great and terrible day of the Lord, Elijah is going to appear to restore the hearts of the kids to their parents and everything's going to be just peachy. We all have potato salad and play baseball and it's a wonderful picnic. Something like that. And so it's this expectation that before the end comes, Elijah's got it. He's taking care of business. And then the Messiah just rolls up, takes his throne, and everything's cool. That's what people were expecting. So these two characters that, that, that they were getting this from, they're there with Jesus. Both Elijah and Moses had mountaintop encounters with God. One on Sinai, one um, after the greatest victory fleeing from Jezebel is Elijah. And God reminded him again of his presence, the small, still voice. It's not in the power, it's in the presence. Both of them have non-traditional deaths. Elijah had this chariot of fire kind of ascension. Dun, 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 dun. No, wrong movie. Um, there's this ascension where um, God's saying that there's something else going on here. Okay, I want, I want to direct your attention. Moses, it just says God buried. In other words, they didn't know where his, where his body was. But together they represent God's ultimate plan all the way through from the very, very beginning. We're going to see how, how much beginning it was next week. It's eschatology. That means last things. All of us are people that are pointed somewhere. All of us have a landing point picked out, whether we realize it or not, based on the choices that we're making right here, right now, based on who we're, we're, we're tracking with. What these guys show us is that God also has a landing point for all of history, all of creation, and every person. Are we in? Are we out? Most significantly, though, and I believe this is, this is the point that God was making, both of them were heroes of Judaism. Both of those were heroes of what it meant to be favored by God, to, to walk with God, to rock with God, doing it all right. Both of these dudes suffered horribly in following God, and you couldn't deny that. In fear, in trembling, the lives being uh, demanded, rejected by their own people over and over and over again. And so they're showing up in person, reminding them, you know what? It's always been about suffering before glory, always. Continuing, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Whose story is this? Gospel of Mark. Who's telling the story? Peter. This is his story. Peter's in prison before he's going to be executed. John Mark is there, and, and he's, you know, he's ghostwriting, okay, so to speak. Actually, Peter is. So this is Peter's story, and he's not ashamed to say, I, I, I was... I was just terrorized. Then a cloud appeared and covered them. A voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. See, Peter, just in his human panic, defaults to what he knows from childhood. Every single year as a Hebrew boy, the big camping trip. There were three pilgrimages that every Jew was required to make during the year. It was uh, Pentecost or, or first fruits or harvest. It was Passover. I'm um, celebrating God's deliverance from Egypt, aka Moses. And then it was uh, the festival of booths or tents or tabernacles, which is basically a reminder of God was with you in the wilderness. He's going to be with you no matter what. Uh, what do we take for granted? So everybody would go to Jerusalem and camp out for a week and it would just be this 
kind of deal. So he defaults. He panics. And he says, okay, we can do this. We we can camp out here. This this is just like a religious holiday. We're going to do all of these things. And he just isn't getting it. One, he's still referring to Jesus on the same plane. I mean, Moses and Elijah, those are big guns there. But that's not, I mean, completely different from Jesus. They're still people. So, so Peter's not getting it. He's seeing them still equally. And even more than that, he's doing the same thing that actually Satan was trying to get Jesus to do. To camp out in the glory before making it to the place through a path of suffering. So he wanted to t- fly him in from a helicopter and drop him to the end without having developed in reality to get there. See, often we think of life as an idealization, that, that, that a family, a relationship, a past, a future hope, whatever it is, this is the way it should be, and it's so idealized. And it's a sense of, oh, we have a great whatever, we have a great relationship, we have a great friendship, because it's this, we never argue. But is it real? Is it a great relationship, or is it a peaceful relationship? Is it a quiet relationship? Is it a convenient relationship? Is it an easy one? Is it a passive one? Just because it's this and it's idealized on the outside... If it's not real, it's not real. It doesn't matter. We project ourselves images of the Christian we think we should be. God doesn't care about that person at all because they don't exist. Only cares about the one. Okay? And so there's this reality that has to be entered into for it to happen. So so Peter defaults to being a motor mouth, um, terror, all of this. Then they were all alone. Immediately, there was this terror, there was this moment, this was God, it was just, you know, Peter, you know, in the presence of Jesus said, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. And now it's like, where am I going to go? God's all around me, I'm, I'm dead. I should have had my quiet time today, he's going to get me. Didn't witness enough. I'll give more temple next week, I'll be cool. Um, they were all alone. Full circle. It began with God's initiative. We love because he first loved us. Salvation is from the Lord. He came after us. While we were yet sinners, while we were yet his enemies, his abusers, his rapists, his, his violator, his crucifier, while we were yet that, that's when he showed the greatest love in coming after us, doggedly following, pursuing us, using every means possible that we could come to faith. But it came at a tremendous cost. God's initiative. This is my beloved son. This is the son who I love. This is my cherished one. Listen to him. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, didn't we see this movie before? Beginning of Jesus' ministry, his baptism, what happened? There's a cloud, right? There's a voice. It's a manifestation of the spirit, father, son, spirit. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Same thing. It was always about relationship from the very beginning. And in between, there was all sorts of religion and festivals and Bible heroes and trying to fit this in and end times hope and how's Israel going to be restored and what role do I have and how does this all fit together? It's just everybody's on a different page. And he gets back to it. He says, you know what? Yeah, these things have their place. Sure. But this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. It's about a person. It's about a relationship. Always has been. Always will be. See, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, when they heard this voice, the curtain was going up. This is the introduction of his public ministry. Now they're hearing again, just after he told them, you know what, it's all going to change. I've literally gone ballistic. Ballistic's when a missile or bullet or something reaches the top, and it's just going down on its own. 
Jesus is ballistic now. He's inexorably drawn toward Jerusalem, drawn toward the ultimate fulfillment of his mission, the ultimate demonstration of his love, grace and mercy, meeting wrath and justice. After the curtain was going down, and I think the disciples were realizing this, still nonetheless being about relationship. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead might mean. I mean, this is a concept they just could not fathom. In in their, their understanding, it's everyone's kind of in a holding tank, Sheol, this kind of longest game of solitaire ever. And, and then Jesus, Messiah, sets everything right. I'll just say Messiah in the Jewish, Jewish view. And everyone just sort of pops up, bing. Okay, Elijah just cleaned out everything for us, and here we are. That's what they're expecting. Jesus rising from the dead before this. And so I don't know what sort of discussion they were having. If they were my friends, it would be, what do you think it's going to be like? Is it going to be the Romero Day of the Dead zombie? Or is it going to be like 28 days rage virus fast zombies? What does rising from the dead mean? Is, is it going to be like, like you, just, you never age? Is, is, it going to, uh, is it just for a short while? Is he taking us with it? With us? And, and they're going, but okay, keep it down, man. He, we can't let him know that we, we haven't gotten it. We're, you nodded, right? Yeah, I nodded. I nodded. What else was I going to do? You understand we're rising from the dead? Oh, yeah, yeah, Jesus, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so they were just, they, they just couldn't put this together. They, they had no room in their, in their theology, in their experience, in the way life works. When people die, they stay dead. And so they're, they're just, they're, they're afraid. Because every time they didn't get a lesson, Jesus sort of leans into them a little bit. See, the first time Jesus rebukes the disciples, because uh, he, he talks about the feeding, you know, this, this image of grace few crumbs of grace to somebody who wasn't a Jew, and now as much food as people can eat, okay? And so there's much more that's being taught, and so he says, beware the yeast of the Pharisees, and the disciples are going, oh, he said that because we didn't bring bread. It was just an obvious, stupid mistake. They, they weren't getting it. So Jesus says, hey, guys, no, you know, it's this. It's pretty easy on him. Why he got so harsh with Peter? Because it was 98% truth and 2% lie. And it was a lot more dangerous because it was a lot more believable. And because it went along with so much that we would want anyway. Jesus can be God as long as I get the final edit on the story. We do that. That's what the disciples were doing. I'll let you be God. I'll let you do whatever you want. But I get the final say. Whether I agree or whether I don't. Whether I obey or whether I don't. Whether I think it's right or whether I don't think it is. Whether I can reject you, God, because you're not fair. And why has this happened? Or I will follow you nonetheless. And, that's, and that's, so he really laid into Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Because it's not the outright lies that, we, that are dangerous. Because they're stupid. We reject them. And beat, your, beat, your, beat your hand with a hammer. It'll be great. Not really. Don't struggle with that. But something that so allies with the way that I think life should be, that's where, that's where blasphemy happens. We get off track. But I, oops, excuse me. And they ask him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah, do, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much? And be rejected. But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him.
It's interesting. In the, in the three different accounts we have of this event, uh, the different authors bring out different themes. Matthew, for example, brings out the sense of the, the, the mercy and grace of God. That he compares Moses and Sinai and the original Sinai mountain and giving of the Ten Commandments and the presence of God and people being impressed with his holiness and in a sense of if you even touch the mountain, you got to be killed. If an animal goes near, if, if Screffy goes up to sniff something, you got to kill him. Sorry. Um, no one goes near the mountain. You touch it, you'll die. That's how serious God's holiness is. It's way beyond a third rail. And now we have the transfiguration ending in Matthew. They were terrified that they're going to die. And Jesus walks over and touches them. Be at peace. I'm here with you. So Matthew brings out that element, that sense of even though there's God's holiness in Christ and presence, it's, it's mediated. We can stand in the presence of God with Christ. With, with Luke, it's a little different. Um, with, with Luke, it's... Um, also about Moses, and it says Jesus was discussing his departure from Jerusalem with him, but the word he uses is Exodus. Why would he discuss Exodus with Moses? Isn't that crazy? You have to read about it. The book of Exodus is about Moses. Anyway, um, so he's bringing out that aspect of saying, you know what, this, this stuff that was going on with people that were enslaved, people that were helpless, that were hopeless, that could not ever save themselves, God raises up a deliverer to come and save and love them. That's what the Exodus is about. That's what Christ is doing. No matter what, his love is that profound. What Mark brings out is Elijah, okay, which is strange. Because Moses is much more well-known than Elijah. And, and it's this whole theme of the disciples trying to wrestle with what Jesus just said, suffering, and the way it should be, and the way God's going to make it nice for me. And so they go with a textbook question. They didn't want to, you know, put themselves out there. Well, what do you mean by raised from the dead? So they ask a safe question. Textbook question everyone was asking. Uh, so Jesus, um, why do the teachers say that Elijah must come first and restore all things? The implication is this. Jesus... The plan of God's been foretold. You believe it, I believe it, we're all in. And the plan of God is this. Elijah will come just before the great and terrible day of the Lord and restore all things. You know what all things means, Jesus? Yeah, you know, I kind of wrote the book. Yeah, all things means all, doesn't it? And so if everything is going to be restored the way it should be, and then, you know, it's, it's the end, why do you have to suffer? Why do you have to die? Because it's sort of Elijah's sort of this, this eraser. You know, he just sort of, you know, he just erases whatever's going on. It's the reset button. Doesn't matter what happens. Doesn't matter how bad I make, make this up. It's just it's easy button. Elijah, done. And so, man, Elijah, are you coming this Passover? Sit in this chair because my life's a mess. As soon as you show up, done. Well, Jesus, that's true. So what's this suffering talk? I don't get it. Did you forget this part of Malachi? So Jesus answers him. He says, yeah, you've essentially understood the plan of God as it's been laid out. But two things here. One, it's not literal. It's not literal. The Bible weaves together in such a rich way. You can't just read it superficially. And secondly, he reminds them that this story has already taken place. Luke has this. He's talking about John the Baptist. Right at the beginning, why John the Baptist still uh, hasn't been born. He, John the Baptist, will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. I don't know what you do with your salvation theology there, but there you have it. Born again before you're born. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. 
And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the, uh, um, to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That's the mission of John the Baptist, and it's tied directly to Elijah. So Jesus rocks it out here. To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. They did not recognize him. They have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. So he's saying, yeah, you're getting the trajectory, but it's already, it's already happened. Elijah has come as John the Baptist. Do you remember what happened to my best friend? The rash running of the mouth of a foolish king caused him to be executed. Got his head chopped off. And, and uh, friends had to come and drag away his body and bury it. It was just this out-of-the-blue shock. This is the messenger of God. This is the one, make way, make every path straight, behold the Lamb of God. I mean, he was just on mission, fully obedient, and he's executed in such a horrible way. And so Jesus is saying, this is, this is Elijah, and this is what they did to him. This is what they did to him when it was Elijah, Elijah, and this is what they did to the role of John the Baptist and the role of Elijah. They, they mistreated him, they tortured him, they executed him. Well, if this is what they did to the messenger and the forerunner, what are they going to do to me? And if this is what they do to me, what are they going to do to you? This is what he's going to tell them just a little bit. They are seriously, seriously reeling now. And so this brings us back to the original question, suffering for Christ. We're told in the Bible, don't, don't suffer for your own stupidity and things that you do. Because if you suffer for doing what's wrong, I mean, that's just justice. It's just what you get. But he's saying to the degree, and that's how we learn lessons. It's where I've had to learn lots of lessons and probably still need to learn a few. Um, but suffering for Christ, I, I think we need to understand how profound and how broadband that that is. Okay, we are all image bearers of God, all of us. And when we worship anything that's not God, that diminishes that image in us. Remember, we're looking at that, core sexuality, other areas. Um, and that is a diminishing of who God is. And there's going to be suffering in that. When we engage in anything that does not align with Christ, for good or for bad, we are going to suffer. Okay? For bad, there's consequences. Sin is always sin. Sin is always uh, gunmen going in and shooting kids multiple times in the face. That's evil. That is sin. It's not this fun thing that I'm doing. It might start out that way. It is always destructive, caustic, toxic, bent on our death, bent on our destruction and ruin, and will brook nothing to get us there. So when we encounter anything that is not aligned with Christ, we are going to, as Christians, we are going to suffer. If we do something negative with a sin and when we encounter things positively. When we confront injustice, the world is going to rage against us. It goes against agendas. It goes against comfort. It goes against just selfishness. There's just an, an industry of sin. When we deal with our own personal sin, we are going to suffer. We're going to have to confront some ugly parts of us. We're going to have to confront uh, part, things that we rely on. We're going to have to confront idols that we have. And, and even as God followers, we're going to have to confront idols. Practically, who do we really worship? That is radical surgery. When we deal with where we are broken, where we are hurting, where we are vulnerable, we are going to suffer. And that is necessary. 
It is part of the restoration process and it's part of the reality that it's not wave a magic wand and, and just repeat this magic word mantra and everything's going to be fine. But down in the core of who you are and where you're broken, I will make this right. It is a process. It will take time. It will not be easy and there will be suffering. Maybe we're struggling with health. Maybe we just got some bad news. There's things we cannot control in our bodies or bodies of loved ones. There's a a diminishing. That is suffering with the goodness of God. Where is God when I hurt so badly? Maybe we're grieving a loss. Loss of a partner, loss of a friend, a child, parent. Um, Maybe loss of a way of life or a loss of a future we had hoped would happen and now we realize never will. You suffer. Maybe we suffer as a consequence of our faith. Could be rejection, could be misunderstanding, could be broken relationships, could be a lot of different things. Maybe we struggle with our witness and just all the consequences of that, for good or for bad. Anywhere we encounter, inside, with others, in this world, the world as it is, and we confront it with how it should be, we are going to suffer. As did Christ, as does God now. We will suffer. We will feel intimately our vulnerability. We will feel small and swept away and overwhelmed. Life shrinks down. And the pain and the problems loom large. Where is God? And this is just where we need power. It's not power to get her done. It's not power to do the next thing. It's not the strength to just get me through, Lord, dear God, so I don't just die from lack of sleep. It's, it's not just, just generic power, like we're the Volt car Christian, we just plug in, okay, and we're good to go for a while, and going to hook up with the Bible, and I'm good. It's not, it's resurrection power, which means it's intimate, it means it's personal, it means it's absolutely more powerful than anything. It is the actual power of God that made everything that brought Christ to life. That's the power that is available to us when we are suffering, when we are stripped, when we are vulnerable, when we're naked and alone and it's only us and we're going to lose. The odds are stacked way up against us. That is where the resurrection power manifests and comes alive and we experience the nearness of God often when we can feel so far away. It's personal, it's raw, and it is real. It's not just more of, it is a qualitatively better way of doing life, but it will come at a cost because we're going to have to deal with where we hurt, where we hate, where we're broken, where we're idolaters. Paul was all about religion. He was all about keeping score. He was all about showing people just how, what an awesome believer he was in his own way. And he knew all the Bible heroes and all the festivals and all the religion and all the ways to commend himself to God. And he would later say, you know, I, I was on top of the leaderboard, kicking booty and taking names, uber Jew, because I was keeping score. And I knew I had pole position for the longest time. Jesus encounters him radically. Um, knocks him off his, well, anyway, you know the joke. Um, encounters him radically and... Uh, Nothing's the same. It took him 17 years to integrate what he thought he knew about God and meeting God. But when he put it together, he saw the word, he saw the world, he saw people, he saw himself so radically differently. He was willing to suffer. He hated it. He hurt. Remember why I said, why did God connect Luke and Paul together as as traveling companions? Luke is a doctor. Because Paul's always getting tortured. He's always getting beaten. He, he's always, he always needs a doctor. And so he just had Luke on retainer. You know, he, 
right? But, but Paul gets it. Paul gets it. Radical encounter with Christ. His walk with Christ cost him everything and he suffered greatly. He couldn't be happier. It's my favorite verse. Philippians 3, 10 to 11. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection by participation in his sufferings. That's my translation. Becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal. Quite the opposite. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on to the goal, the upward call, or this, uh, excuse me, I changed the translation a bit. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul understands the nature of reality, the nature of a broken heart, the nature of a messed up theology, the nature of a past he wishes he could erase, and he can't. He's stuck with himself. So he knows that reality and the changes that have to happen, and he walked it out for 17 years before he opened his mouth and, and really started suffering. And Paul could say this at the end, having suffered so greatly, I will gladly boast in my weaknesses that the strength of God can be manifest. So often we think we have to get it together. We have to put on a show. We have to put on a front. We can't let the team down. We can't be real. We can't be real with the people who know us the best. We can't be real with the people who know us the least. And we certainly can't be real with with God because we're not being real with ourselves. And so Paul is saying the starting point is, is right where I am. Wherever you go, there you are, right? What is real? I really need God. I really am a sinner. My life really is a mess. I really am a hater. I really am selfish and arrogant and narcissistic. It's all about me. Everything bends its curved space to me. I start with that. I need radical, radical surgery. And praise God, that's what God did, radical transfusion. I will boast in adversity that the power of Christ may triumph. I will boast in my vulnerability that the intimacy of God can be known more and more fully. I will boast in what I cannot change that the grace of God would prove itself to be more than sufficient for every season, every question, every doubt, every fear, every pain, every liability, every limitation, every disappointment. The grace of God would be more than enough I boast in my brokenness that I would know in increasing measure the reality of the wholeness and the healing of God. It's real. It's raw. There are things that don't fit. There's just this. This is all of our life swirling together. And it's so easy to want to take hold of it or to manage it or to minimize it or to hide or to put it, you know, to camp out in the glory and, and not want to deal with the suffering. But there's only one way to do this. There's only one path for Christ. There's only one path for his disciples, one path for the prophets, and one path for each of us. Because it's radical surgery. An easy way to understand it is this. In Christ, one-time act. We're transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. That's what God did. Salvation is from him. God has our souls, but he wants our hearts. And he wants our minds, and he wants relationship, and he wants depth of intimacy, and it takes two to tango with that. 
when we come to the end of ourselves, when we come to the end of our answers, when we come to the end of trying to make sense of this world, we're left with ourselves and we're left with God. Which one are we going to lean on? Which one are we going to cling to? Because we make that decision every single day. I think there's probably no better way to, to really meditate upon this is than with communion, which is the ultimate testimony of God's love, the ultimate testimony of even when we don't understand, even when it's work in progress, even though the waves are swirling around us, there is a God who has reached down into our mess, laid hold of us, given us new life, given us a rock upon which to stand, given us a new name, a new identity, completely whole and holy and healed and righteous before God. And the rest of our lives now, we get to work that reality out in reality, not in lip service, not in projection, not in pretending. And that means it's going to take time for that reality to work itself through but it's going to be real and satisfying. That means it's going to be raw in transition when, when we're destabilized. Um, Wednesday night, folks, remember we studied the book of Psalms. Can do, Psalms fall into three categories. Psalms of orientation, is who God is, is who I am. Psalms of disorientation, life just hit me in the face and I don't know which end is up. And Psalms of reorientation, this is God putting my broken world back together and it is stronger in the broken places. That is the God who loves us, who gave himself for us, paid the price he thought you were worth in your brokenness, in your rebellion, in your ignorance, in your selfishness, in your hate, in the person you want nobody to see. God looked down upon you, fell in love with you from before eternity and crossed hell to get to you, to save you, to love you. Will he not fully give you all things that you need in his time? But he's not concerned with a bling. He's not concerned with a comfort. He's not concerned with a fleeting happiness. He's concerned with power and passion and joy. Things that cannot and will not change. Things for eternity. Love against which there is no law. And that's what we celebrate in the person of Christ. In the reality of his sacrifice. Not a historical event 2,000 years ago. That happened. Real time-space reality. But a living event now in our lives. I'd like to invite the deacons forward. To distribute the communion elements. If you're visiting what we do here, this is just a symbolic way to remind us. Mine like a steel sieve need to be reminded every single week the person of Christ and the centrality of that. That's where life makes sense. That's where I'm standing on the right foundation. And that's where I can be okay being broken, being sinful, being frail because Christ has made me whole and complete. Pure in him, working it out now in reality. So as the deacons distribute the elements, please just take the the juice and the bread if you would like. If you let this pass, that's absolutely fine as well. And use this time as the worship band plays to, you can sing and worship. You may pray, you may reflect in the quietness. Let the Spirit speak to you. Where are we broken? Where is God? And we will find, most importantly, when we are most hurting and broken, God is inside of us.
night that our Lord was handed over, he took bread, gave thanks to the Lord, and he broke it. He said, looking around at his friends, this is my body broken for you. Every time that you eat of this, you do so in remembrance of me, the body of Christ, the bread of heaven. When he had finished eating, he took wine, and he said, In this cup, it's the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of many sins. As often as you drink of this, you do this in remembrance of me, the blood of Christ, the cup of salvation. Thank you, Father, that your sacrifice is complete. That in you, because of you completely, we are made perfect, we are whole. And I pray for increasing intimacy as we experience increasing vulnerability. That we would know this worked out personally in our lives. We would know this worked out personally in relationship with you. And that we would see you, Lord God of all creation, as the most intimate ally and bring us to yourself. Let us run the way of your presence as you enlarge our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please pass your cups to the center. Continue worshiping. You too. 
Amen. Well, you know, life here is temporary. It's just a little blip. And, uh, but life in Christ is for eternity. Amen. And so, um, just a quick reminder that, uh, I want you to take advantage of the Christmas services we have again next Sunday morning, uh, at 11 AM is a special Christmas service. And then if you happen to be going out of town on Monday night, which is Christmas Eve, you can come back Sunday night for Christmas Eve Eve. Okay. It'll be different than Sunday morning. And uh, it's just going to be really cool. By the way, if you're a young adult like myself, haha, uh, you know, 20s, 30s, somewhere in there, um, we do have a Christmas party afterwards. If you didn't know about it, you're welcome to come to that right downstairs in the fellowship hall. And uh, hey, we love you guys. And um, hmm? yes, if you need prayer, like I do often, by uh, this with support of my brothers and sisters we have that available to you right after this service right over here in fact if our prayer counselors would make their way forward they will meet you right over here and spend as much time as you need in prayer um, so hey merry christmas by the way if somebody says to you happy holidays this week say thank you merry christmas <laughs> you know what i'm saying all right we love you guys have an awesome day take care